in a few minutes, uh, when we recite the Nicene Creed, we will proclaim that we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. The Apostles' Creed, likewise, proclaims that we believe in the resurrection of the body. So we, including our bodies, will rise from the dead. And that's quite a claim, and some people would would suggest that that's an absurd idea, that our bodies will come back. After all, what about a person whose body has been cremated? Obviously, there's not even like a body to be resurrected. Or what about uh, questions like this? What about organ donation? You know, if one person gives a kidney to another person, well, whose kidney will it be at the resurrection? can't be both. So obviously, resurrection is an absurdity, and it just can't be true. At least, that's sort of the argument the Sadducees are trying to make in today's gospel. The Sadducees were a group, um, a sect of Judaism, that, as the gospel says, did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. And there was another sect within Judaism called the Pharisees, who did believe in a resurrection from the dead. So among the Jews, this was a point of debate. Different groups had different ideas about whether or not death was permanent. And Jesus, on this matter, of course, agreed with the Pharisees that there is a resurrection to look forward to after death. Now the Sadducees tried to argue their position using the example of the woman with seven husbands, As I said, there was a Jewish law that if a man died, leaving his wife without any children, the man had a brother, the brother was supposed to take the wife and provide children to carry on the family after the loss. So what if a man had seven brothers and all of them died, one after another, all having been married to the extremely unfortunate same woman uh, at the resurrection, who will be her husband? The Sadducees are suggesting that this problem shows, well, resurrection is obviously absurd. But, of course, Jesus, he's able to provide an explanation. He is, after all, the author of marriage. He said there is a resurrection from the dead, but that those who rise will no longer be married. Because in heaven, there is no marriage. That doesn't mean that there's no intimacy or love in marriage or in, in heaven. On the contrary, uh, after the resurrection, spouses will even be closer to one another than they can be in this life, and to all the saints, too, and to God. Nothing good is lost in heaven. Everything will be perfected for those who are there. And that should give us great hope for a future that's beyond death. The fact that there will be a resurrection, though it should also in addition to provide hope for the future, it should affect how we live our lives here and now. It should give us courage, for example, to stand up for our faith and to live it boldly. Think of that gruesome first reading. It's really gruesome. It described a time when the Israelites were, had been conquered by the Greeks, and the Greeks then tried to impose their culture upon the Jewish people. And a war broke out as a result, and the Jews were persecuted for their beliefs. And in the scene described in the reading, 
a mother and her seven sons were arrested, and their Greek captors tried to force them to eat pork, which would have been a violation of the Jewish law. So these seven sons and their mother had to choose between denying God, who's the author of this law, and facing torture and death. Well, this whole family chose to die rather than to deny the Lord, even on something as small as dietary restrictions in the Jewish law. One of the brothers about to die explained to his captors, you are depriving us of this present life, but the king of the world will raise us up to live again forever. It is for his laws that we are dying. So they really believed that they would rise again. And it's not that they didn't value their bodies or that they simply looked forward to some kind of spiritual union with God after death. They thought about a bodily resurrection. Consider how that third son, when told to hold out his hands and to stick out his tongue so they could be cut off, how he responded by saying, It was from heaven that I received these. For the sake of his laws I disdain them. From him I hope to receive them again. He hoped to receive his hands and his tongue and his whole life and body back from the Lord. And so do we. But we can think of all kinds of questions, though, about how that's going to work. You know, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? Whose kidney will it be at the resurrection? How will this cremated body be raised? What's our answer to these questions? Well, St. Thomas Aquinas is one of the greatest theologians and philosophers of our tradition. He explained that at the resurrection, the soul will not resume a celestial or ethereal body. So he's saying that at the resurrection, we're not going to become angels. Um, In fact, no human being has ever become an angel in heaven, and it's it's theologically incorrect to say that our loved one is an angel in heaven. Uh, because angels are actually an entirely different species from us. Uh, they've never had bodies, whereas we do have bodies. Um, so, yeah, we don't become angels. We do hopefully become saints, though. Thomas continued saying that we, the soul does also not take up the body of some animal, as some p- certain people fancifully prattle. No, it will resume a human body, made up of flesh and bones, and equipped with the same organs as it now possesses. He explained that the same soul and body are reunited, not new ones. So it's the same person that comes back, right? We can also argue that, hey, if God is able to create every bit of matter in the universe that ever existed out of nothing, he can solve the problem of, say, reconstructing that cremated body or restoring these shared kidneys or whatever. And in short, I think we just simply say that we trust that God will sort it out. And as for us, we should, I think, worry more about the fact that our own death is not too far off. We don't know when our days will come, and we need to be ready to be judged for our actions and whether or not we obeyed the Lord's laws. The brothers in that first reading, they were willing to die before committing a single sin. I mean, just think about that. Would you rather die than commit a single serious sin? 
I mean, really? The brothers from that first reading make all of us, I think, look a lot rather weak in our faith. We sin left and right. We don't bother to frequent the confessional where God's mercy is dispensed. We kind of assume we'll get to heaven and that uh, God won't hold all of our wrongdoings against us. Yet, if we choose to walk away from God, committing sin without ever repenting, he's not going to force us to be with him in heaven. And with every sin, we choose hell over heaven. And now we, many, in many parts of the world today, especially in places like China, but I would say actually now, even in our own country right now, Christians are being persecuted by our own governments for our Christian faith. We're pressured to leave it out of fear for something else, like some parts of the world for Islam, other parts of the world like our country, like an atheistic kind of secularism or other parts of the world for communism. But many people stay in the church and in the faith, and they risk martyrdom rather than rejecting God. And many people have actually died rather than reject the faith. So what is it that gives these martyrs such courage? Well, in part, it is the belief that we have in a glorious afterlife where our bodies and souls will be reunited and perfected and where we will suffer no more. And that's something worth living our lives for and giving our lives for. And Jesus assures us that it is real. 